0: All right, so I'm going to tell you up front today, buckle up, <laughs> put your seatbelts on because we got places to go. We got a lot, a lot of ground to cover today um, and uh, for much of the message today, you're going to see quotes on the screen because along the way, we're going to hear from John Wesley himself. Uh, quite a few times, and so I wanted you to be able to see that as well as hear it, especially for those of you uh, who are visual learners, uh, and also just to make sure you stay awake out there. Although I'm going to do my best to keep your interest. Um, it is it is really it's an amazing story that we're going to look at today uh, of some examples from Wesley's life. But we're going to start in Scripture, and uh, we're going to look at a story that comes from the Book of Acts, that book in the New Testament that tells the story of the early church. And probably the two people that we think of most commonly as key figures in the book of Acts are Paul and Peter. Uh, But there are other figures who show up from time to time. And almost the entire eighth chapter of Acts is devoted to some stories that involve a man named Philip. First, he goes to Samaria Um, after the church disperses following the stoning of Stephen. He goes to Samaria and begins sharing the good news there. And they respond. Uh, And so another community responds to the good news of the gospel. And then from that moment, uh, he is then driven or led, if you will, by the Spirit in the story that we hear immediately following. So I invite you to follow along as I read for us this story today. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up. And go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit and breathe life into the words that I speak, that they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives on this day. Amen. There is a theme that runs throughout the book of Acts, at least one theme, and that is that God is doing a new thing that there are surprising events that happen along the way and there are numerous accounts throughout the book of Acts that point to this idea and it requires an openness to the movement of the Spirit. It's almost as if the early church as it was forming both remembered and honored Jesus' words that he had spoken while he was still alive. The Spirit blows where it will. And so in this story today, we have one example of the spirit blowing, moving Philip to a particular place and time to have an encounter with a particular person. And there are a few observations that at the outset I want to make about the story itself. The first is that this is a highly surprising and unexpected and unusual encounter. We have two people, Philip who is one of the disciples, one of those followers of Jesus who is serving as an evangelist and a leader. And we have an Ethiopian eunuch, a man from a faraway country and a man who has been castrated in order to eliminate any potential threat that he might be to the throne and also to prepare him for service in a significant role within the queen's court, Specifically, we're told in the story today that he is in charge of all the treasury. Now, so he's a man of certainly some importance within that, uh, within that crown, but he is also an outsider. We have Philip, an insider, and an Ethiopian eunuch, an outsider, and he is an outsider because of his physical condition as a eunuch. In fact, if we go back to the Torah, we see in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus scriptures that say that eunuchs are not allowed in the temple. And yet the eunuch still wants to worship. That's part of the story. He goes to Jerusalem in order to worship, knowing that he will have to be on the outside. And then as he is going home, he is still wanting to learn and digest more. And so he is reading the prophet Isaiah when the Spirit moves Philip to go and have a conversation with him. Notice in this story also the way in which in spite of it being very out of the ordinary and in spite of this being an encounter that many would say in that day Philip should not have even had because of who the eunuch is and his condition, Philip is both obedient and responsive to the nudging of the Holy Spirit. Another interesting feature of this is that these two men in their encounter who come from very different backgrounds don't make statements either to or at each other, but instead the only thing that we hear from them in the back and forth are questions. They ask one another questions and it is the spirit of God that provides the direction for what should happen in the story and so they end up near water and with Philip baptizing the eunuch something that would have been considered unimaginable in that day but God was doing a new thing Now, often this story is referred to as the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Nadia Boltz-Weber points out that we could also refer to this story as the conversion of Philip because Philip is open to something new that God is doing in this story. And in naming the story that way, she invites us to focus on the ongoing work of conversion and sanctification that is needed in our own lives, not somebody else's life, but in our own lives. Which brings us to today's focus. We have been in this series for the last several weeks about the roots of our Methodist faith and some of the best things about who we are as people who follow in the tradition of John Wesley and others who were a part of the Methodist movement. And today we're going to look at several examples from Wesley's own life that point to this idea of being open Uh, as John himself was continuing to understand, come to understand more about the work that God was doing, his own conversion and sanctification experiences. And each of these that I'll share about today are significant not only to him personally, but also to the movement itself and its ultimate impact. Now, I titled the message today, Kicking and Screaming into the Fields, which is an allusion to one example of this work. You see, John Wesley um, had a friend by the name of George Whitfield. They had been in school together at Oxford and following school, they had remained very close as friends and correspondents. They both were preaching and were gaining quite a bit of notoriety um, and yet they both in the 1730s had found themselves cast out and banned from speaking in many churches within the Church of England because they were so passionate about sharing the good news and sharing it in a way that invited people to experience a change both of heart and of life and so in 1739, in February of 1739, George Whitfield finds himself in the town of Bristol, second largest city in England in that day. And he begins to preach outside. And he writes to his friend John about this. And John is taken aback because John cannot imagine such a thing being appropriate. The only way he has ever known preaching to happen is within the confines of a church building in a sanctuary. And so this is very strange to him and and disconcerting. And so they have some conversation or, or correspondence back and forth. And finally, John agrees to go to Bristol and to see it for himself. And we hear this from Wesley on the day of his arrival, which points to his uncertainty about this business. In the evening I reached Bristol and met Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which he set me an example on Sunday. I had been all my life till very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. John was troubled by this business of preaching outside. Could that really be okay? And if it happened, did it, was it really effective and did it count, if you will? And yet, as he witnesses Whitfield, he sees the fruit And in seeing the fruit, he begins to experience a conversion, if you will. Until two days later, we read this in his journal. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile, not so much decency and order anymore, and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking, and notice the very careful use use of words here, speaking, not preaching, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. Well, the week goes on, and by Sunday, it appears that John has given in totally to this idea and to the fruit that it bears. We hear this in his journals about that day at 7 in the morning. I preached to about a thousand persons at Bristol and afterward to about 1,500 on the top of Hannam Mount in Kingswood. I called to them in the words of the evangelical prophet, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. That second sermon, the one at Hannam Mount, was preached outdoors. In fact, here is a photo of Hannah Mount as it looks today. You see those words at the base of the railing, all the world is my parish, which is a reference to John's own words. And while it looks a lot different today than it would have been back in 1739, you can probably tell just from looking at it that there's a little bit of a natural amphitheater setting right there where, uh, where they would preach time and time again. Open air preaching became a spark that helped ignite the Methodist movement. And it would be part of Wesley's practice from that day forward. Many times he would return to his hometown of Epworth where he was born and raised, and there he would preach at the town square. You see an, an illustration here of that. Uh, he's standing just in front of the cross that's in the center of the square. And just behind it is the Red Lion Inn where Catherine and I stayed just uh, not too many weeks ago when we were on the Wesley study tour. Uh, and, and in addition to preaching there in the town square, we know of at least one instance when he did something rather radical and perhaps disconcerting to some, St. Andrew's Church was where his father had been the rector there in Epworth for many years. And after his death, there was a time when John had gone back to preach and he was not allowed in the church to preach. And so because burial grounds were considered family property, he simply walked right outside the church to the cemetery that was a part of the church grounds and stood on top of his father's grave. Take a look at this image. And for three days preached the good news from his father's grave many years later he shares this about that event i am well assured that i did far more good to my lincolnshire parishioners by preaching 3 days on my father's tomb than i did by preaching 3 years in his pulpit and then notice this to this day field preaching is a cross to me but i know my commission and see no other way of preaching the gospel to every creature. He never lost his discomfort with the idea of field preaching, but he recognized the movement of the spirit and the calling that was being given to him and the impact that it could make. Historians by looking back at his journals and the records of others estimate for us That in his lifetime, Wesley traveled more than 200,000 miles on horseback and preached more than 40,000 sermons, many of them outdoors. Well, another example of Wesley being open is when it comes to the role of women in the church and in the Methodist movement. Specifically, the idea of women preachers Now, first of all, there is the impact certainly of his own mother. Catherine shared last week how Susanna, during a time when Samuel was away, started sharing, testifying, if you will, but in essence preaching the good news to the townspeople of Epworth and more and more were coming. And so John would have witnessed that uh, and, and seen the impact that his mother was having. But in his adult life, there were two women who were particularly instrumental in his awakening, shall we say, to the idea of women preachers. These two women were Sarah Crosby and Mary Bozenkay. And you see images of both of them here. Sarah and Mary were both early participants in the Methodist movement. They became leaders. They were part of a group of women who ran a Methodist orphanage in England. But as they shared their own story of God's work in their life, more and more people were coming to hear them. And as more and more people were coming to hear them, they reached out to John for guidance. And so in 1761, uh, John, in response to Sarah, encourages her to reassure them that, quote, the Methodists do not allow of women preachers, but that she is just plainly speaking what is on her heart. He's not ready to go to the point of saying preaching yet. But he goes on to say this in the letter to her. I do not see that you have broken any law. Go on calmly and steadily. If you have time, you may read to them the notes on any chapter before you speak a few words or one of the most awakening sermons as other women have done long ago. Certainly among those other women, he would be thinking, of his own mother's example. Well, Crosby and Kay continue to seek guidance from John uh, as they have more and more people coming and their leadership is more and more recognized. By 1769, we have uh, an excerpt from a letter where Wesley authorizes Crosby to offer short exhortations while still not calling them sermons. But finally in 1771, it is a letter that he receives from Mary Bozenkai. And that, combined with the other evidence that has been accumulated, causes Wesley once again to see the fruit. And he writes back to Kaye and to Sarah Crosby in this way. My dear sister, I think the strength of the cause rests there. On your having an extraordinary call, It is plain to me that the whole work of God termed Methodism is an extraordinary dispensation of His providence. Therefore, I do not wonder if several things occur therein which do not fall under ordinary rules of discipline. Wesley's mind had been converted, and there were a number of women who then, at that point, in the 1700s, my friends, were authorized to serve as preachers as a part of the Methodist movement, both in England and in America. It is this same perspective, this same idea that God was doing something extraordinary through the movement that ultimately led to the formation of the Methodist church as its own denomination starting here in America. Now. Let me be clear in saying this was never Wesley's intent. He wanted revival. He wanted reformation within the Church of England. In fact, we know from his notes and from his writings that this was the case. He says on one occasion, we look upon ourselves not as the authors or ringleaders of a particular sect or party, but as messengers of God. He even wrote explicitly against separation in a tract that was published in the year 1760, Reasons Against Separation from the Church of England. Throughout his life, he maintained this position within England. In fact, in 1786, in his 80s, just five years before his death, he wrote on schism, one of his sermons, And in that sermon he says, Suppose you could not remain in the Church of England without doing something which the Word of God forbids or omitting something which the Word of God positively commands. If this were the case, but blessed be God it is not, you ought to separate from the Church of England. To his dying day in England, he believed that, the church, that, that his call was to reform and to revive and to keep the church together. But something had changed in America that persuaded him to take a different approach on this side of the pond. That something most likely was the Treaty of Paris on September 3rd, 1783, which granted independence to those in America separate from England and with that treaty and with that independence, it meant that there was now a country where Methodism was already thriving that was no longer tied to the Church of England. Wesley did not want that influence to wane or to be lost and so within six months, he had signed a deed of declaration for the formation of a church here in America That summer in 1784, he ordained ministers to be the first to come to America as ordained ministers and superintendents for that church. And at the Christmas conference in 1784, the Methodist Episcopal Church of America was formally established. Once again, it was the fruit, the evidence, what was happening that convinced Wesley Now, Wesley is probably best known for being the founder of Methodism and the Methodist Church, but perhaps his greatest legacy is his contribution to the abolishment of slavery in both England and in the U.S. Wesley first became aware of the horrors of slavery when he read a play entitled "Orunoko" in his early 20s. He makes reference to that play many years later and the impact that it had on him. And a little over a decade later, between 1736 and 1738, he and his brother Charles spent a couple of years here in America, and their time in America opened his eyes. Charles writes about the atrocities of slavery that they witnessed and other stories that they were told about. They had multiple opportunities to spend time with slaves in Georgia and South Carolina. And it is clear that a burden begins to be laid on his heart for people of color, and especially those who have been enslaved. And so he starts to work behind the scenes for the good of these people for whom his heart is burdened. In 1740, we read a journal entry where he talks about uh, making a collection for the Negro school. Between 1755 and 1757, we know that he sent books to Samuel Davies, who would become the president of Princeton, to be given to slaves in that area. In 1757, in his tract on original sin, he addresses the curse on Canaan that we find in the ninth chapter of Genesis, a passage that was being used at the time as justification for slavery. And Wesley contradicts and counters that usage by pointing to it instead as an example of the way that we are led into sinful behavior and cause harm to our brothers and sisters who are different than us. The pivotal event, though, is February 12th, 1772, it is on that day, in his 60s, that he reads a tract by Anthony Benizet, a Quaker in Philadelphia. And that reading marks the beginning of what some scholars call a triumvirate. A friendship of three, Benizet, Wesley, and Granville Sharp, whose influence when it comes to slavery being eliminated both in America and in England cannot be underestimated Two years later, 1774, Wesley publishes Thoughts Upon Slavery. In that book, one excerpt we read is this. It is certainly our duty to do all in our power to check this growing evil and something may be done by spreading those tracks which place it in a true light. Wesley, for years having been a silent sympathizer working behind the scenes, becomes outspoken and from that day forward is relentless in his participation in the cause of bringing slavery to an end. Now remember, this is 1772. You all know how many years it would be before slavery would finally be abolished here in America. But Wesley was speaking out loudly and clearly starting in 1772. And the impact of his writing is undeniable. Three editions of Thoughts Upon Slavery published in the first year because of the wide desire to read it. Thirteen editions over a period of 30 years in America. It was sent to every Methodist society in England. And a copy was found in George Washington's library at his death of 354 books. In 1775, Wesley publishes a calm address to our American colonies in which he calls out the hypocrisy of a people referring to their relationship to England as slavery while at the same time enslaving people and treating them with unimaginable horrors. In 1778, he publishes a serious address to the people of England Saying that the time is now to end this tragedy. 1784, at the founding of the Methodist Episcopal Church at the Christmas Conference, anti slavery is clearly identified as one of the fundamental tenets of this new church in its formation. And in 1790, at the age of 86 or 7, Wesley clearly remains passionate in his old age. He says, I would do anything that is in my power toward the extirpation of that trade, which is a scandal not only to Christianity, but humanity. A year later, 1791, just weeks before his death, he pens his final letter, wanting to offer encouragement to a young man who is in parliament and seeking to work toward the end of slavery, a man by the name of William Wilberforce, a name that many of you recognize. And Wesley said this to Wilberforce, but if God be for you, who can be against you? Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Wesley, leaning into the spirit, moving him in new and surprising and often risky places. What can we learn from his example? Do not get boxed in. Wesley often spoke of himself as homo unius libri, which means a man of one book. It was because of his conviction that Scripture was primary in life and in faith, and he was a man of serious conviction and devout faith, and yet this did not keep him from being open, even open to new ways of understanding Scripture itself, and so for us, Who are we to assume that God has already given any one of us the final word on any subject? We are invited as we listen to Wesley's story and the impact of his life on the church and the world to remain open to the movement of the Spirit. Adam Copeland, in preaching on the Acts 8 passage, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, titles his message, Castrating Our Customs. You know, whether you are nine or you are 99, the world has changed in your and my lifetime. And as the world changes, the spirit moves and blows where it will. And it opens up new possibilities for life and faith and community and for us to be attentive to where God wants us to go and to be. And so my question for us this morning is, what is the spirit inviting you to let go of today? What custom, what tradition, what assumption have you held to too tightly for too long? Wesley had to let go of a lot of things that he thought were the norm or even the truth that women couldn't be preachers, that preaching could only happen in a sanctuary, that everybody was supposed to remain a part of the Church of England, that slavery just was a part of the way of life. What is it that you have held on to for too long that God is saying to you, let go? And will you trust God to lead you into wide open new spaces for life and faith. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we say we want to follow you. But the truth is sometimes we get stuck because it feels a lot safer, a lot more comfortable, a lot more familiar to stay in the place where we are. So help us trust you more, Jesus. Help us to honor your leading more. To lean into the Spirit's movement. Free us, O God, for joyful obedience, wherever it might take us. Amen.